So, thank you, family. We are stepping back into the book of Ezra Nehemiah this morning, which I'm very excited about. Remember, this book, Ezra Nehemiah, was originally composed as a unit, as one book. And so, as we will continue to see today and in the weeks ahead. In the fall, just before our Advent season, which was, which was a nice break during Advent, uh, we completed the book of Ezra. And to recap where we've been thus far, the people of God were in exile for 70 years due to their unfaithfulness to God. They chose to worship things other than God and follow their own ways. And God said, okay, you want to love things other than me? Exile. The city and kingdom of Jerusalem, the kingdom of Israel, the, king, the, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and God's people were taken into exile uh, by the Babylonians into Babylon there you will find endless things to love, but you won't have me. I gave you everything, and I told you this would happen if you turned from me into your own ways. And they still chose their own way of life, separate from God. But God. But God, some of the most comforting words in all the Bible, in his steadfast love and unceasing mercy toward his people, remained faithful. We saw this all throughout the book. Despite his people's unfaithfulness, redeemed his people again from captivity, leading them back to Jerusalem. Now, the movements of the book were as such. Let's take a look at this slide. There were three movements in which God leads his people back, okay? We looked at the first two in the book of Ezra. Remember, we're calling them movements because God literally moves his people from Babylon back to Jerusalem. He moves the hearts of Persian kings and the hearts of his people to accomplish these returns. And each movement, as you notice, has similar features. Each movement consists, of, starts back in Babylon, works its way back to Jerusalem, uh, consists of a Persian king, consists of appointed leaders among the people of God toward the end of a specific task in order to accomplish the chief task of returning and rebuilding the house of the Lord. So to recap, first two halves of uh, the, 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 in the book of Ezra, we started with uh, the, the first return led by Sheshbazar, Zer, Zerubbabel, and Jeshua to specifically rebuild the temple, the starting point in, uh, back in Jerusalem. Then Ezra is sent leading the second movement specifically to restore the community in view of God's law to, to reform them. And here in the third movement, what we're going to see is Nehemiah will be appointed to return and rebuild with another wave, the city and its walls. So that's what we're going to look at in, in the weeks ahead. Now, before we enter into Nehemiah 1, I want to ask you a question, as I typically do, uh, to stimulate thought for you to keep in the back of your mind as we work through Nehemiah 1 today and to keep back there as we move forward through the book of Nehemiah. Family, is your house in order? Uh-oh. Is your house in order? That's kind of a tricky question, right? Because in order to answer that, your, your conclusion has to be measured according to some kind of standard, right? So, so for example, for the average person, it would be totally appropriate and it makes sense for them to think, well, I'm accomplishing everything that I want and everything in my house seems to be going as I want it. So, yeah, I guess my house is in order. Others would say, oh, are you serious? Please don't ask me that. I haven't had a chance to clean in days. No, my house is not in order. But give me till Saturday. Then it'll be in order. 
to one, measures according to personal desires. The other measures according to cleanliness. What about for Christians? For Christians who belong to God, our standard of measurement is God's will as revealed in his word. The question for us on whether or not our house in, is in order must be measured according to whether or not we are aligning ourselves with God's desires for us, his priorities for us, his purposes for us. So, is your house in order, Christians? It's an important question. It's an important question to keep in the back of our minds as we walk through Nehemiah because Nehemiah is sent not merely to build a wall, but ultimately to rebuild the community of God's people according to God's standard, his law. Throughout the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, from the opening chapter of Ezra 1, we saw that the main task at hand for the community of God is to return and rebuild the house of the Lord. And what we started to see throughout all of Ezra and will continue to see throughout Nehemiah is that the house of the Lord consists of much more than just the physical temple in Jerusalem. It consists of the whole city and its walls, but above all, the people that make up the city, God's people, his house. God is reforming his people in his place under his law. And by the end of the book of Ezra, one thing was made very clear. Though God has brought about great progress through his people after returning them from exile and redeeming them, God's people could not get their house in order still. Their unfaithfulness to God still prevailed in the community. They couldn't stop failing him. And yet, God remains faithful. Even now, were some of the closing words of the final chapter of Ezra. Let's see what God does next with his people. Let's pray, and then the ushers will walk, the ushers will walk up and pass out Bibles. We'll have scripture up on test. Let's pray and ask God to bless his word and transform our hearts and our minds. Lord Jesus, we remember your words when you walked the face of this earth, when you were teaching about who you were, the bread of life, the bread that comes down from heaven that our souls long for. We remember you said, your words that you speak are spirit and life. Lord Jesus, as we enter into your word now, help us believe. Help us to see and behold your beauties and your wonder. Lord, Turn your word into life within our hearts and minds, that it would be powerful and effective. Stir our hearts with an affection for you today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start by reading Nehemiah 1, the first three verses. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. The book opens by identifying the, the narrator as Nehemiah himself. 
And what a great way to start this story. After a tragic ending to the book of Ezra in mass divorce, God puts forward Nehemiah. Nehemiah's name meaning the Lord comforts. So the setting, it's the month of Kislev, about November, December, wintertime, in the 20th year. Of what? We don't find out until the first verse of chapter 2, the 20th year of Artaxerxes. We'll see that next week. According to history, this is about 445 B.C. Let's take a look at the timeline. Brian used this at one point. This is helpful to, to reset or reorient ourselves. As you can see, the first movement, return of exiles, the first movement under Zerubbabel, Jeshua, second movement, Ezra's return. Here we are, Nehemiah's return, 445, uh, both during the reign of Artaxerxes. Now we're in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign. And Nehemiah's in Susa. The capital and citadel of Persia. This is big. This is a special place. Susa is the resident, it's the winter residence of the king himself. This is the place where the events of Esther took place, where Daniel received his vision in Daniel 8. What's Nehemiah doing there? We'll soon find out. Nehemiah is in Susa and his brother Hanani, likely a brother Jew, arrives and, and Nehemiah pursues him, inquiring on the status of their people who returned to Jerusalem. Now, keep in mind something. Nehemiah has very likely never been to Jerusalem. This is 90 years after the first return. Nehemiah was likely born and raised in this region of Persia, okay? Never been to Jerusalem. However, what we see here right off the bat, once he sees this cohort of his people come back, he's eager to know of their status. He cares deeply about his people over there. He's eager to know how they're doing. And it's not good. The brothers tell him the people are in great distress and disgrace. Trouble and shame. The wall around the city and its gates broken and burned. Now, at this point, it's helpful to make a few connections. What's going on here? First, if you remember, if you've been tracking with us, if you've been with us through this whole series, through the book of Ezra, you remember back in Ezra 4, Brian preached this sermon when opposition from the people of the land was first introduced in the first movement. Brian helped us understand that if you remember in Ezra 4, the text jumped ahead many years into the future to show that the opposition to God's people and God's purposes will always exist. Now, that chapter in Ezra 4 consisted of a letter from the opposition, from Rahim and Shimshai, the people around Jerusalem. And, and that letter was sent to King Artaxerxes, this king, instigating conflict. Remember, they said, these Jews are, re are, are rebuilding a rebellious city, and once it's fortified, they're going to incite re revolts against you. And this king, Artaxerxes, sends a letter back to Rahim and Shimshai and supports their proposal. And he decrees that the Jews stop building the city of Jerusalem. And Ezra 4 says, they immediately went. This is Rahim, Shimshai, and all the people of the land, the opposition. Ezra 4 says, they immediately went to the Jews in Jerusalem and stopped them by force of arms. We saw that many weeks ago. It's happening around this time. So it appears that this event recorded back in Ezra 4, which happened during Nehemiah's day, is what caused, this. it appears that this is what has caused the, the breaking down of the walls and the burning of the gates, the opposition coming in by force of arms. 
Now, not to mention the original condition of the walls and the gates from the original destruction of the kingdom back in 586 from the Babylonians. The walls and gates were already once destroyed. This is a kind of double destruction that we're seeing here. Okay? So that's the connection. That's why the walls and the gates are, 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 are torn down and burned. Second, it's important we understand where the shame comes from upon the people. It's easy to understand why at this time to not have walls and gates around your city, okay, that leaves you weak, vulnerable, open to attacks. It hinders your commerce. But what is the connection to their disgrace? They know that not only are they vulnerable and laughable in their physical condition, but they also bear the unbearable weight of shame upon them because they know that it was ultimately God who allowed them to be torn down and humiliated as a result of their sin. God's law never changed. It's always been very clear. If they love him and follow him with all their hearts, mind, soul, and strength, he will bless them, protect them, and prosper them in every way. But if they turn to their own ways and turn from him, that hedge of protection will be lifted and it will result in their open shame in their sin. So here the people of God stand weak, vulnerable, open to all kinds of attacks, and humiliated in shame before God and before others, the peoples around them. Let's see how Nehemiah responds to this news. Let's read the rest of the chapter, 4 through 11. And then we're going to slowly walk through when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your ears open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses." Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of heavens, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power, by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, May your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. <clears throat> wow. What a response. Very similar to Ezra's response. In Ezra 10, he hears the report of the trouble and shame upon the people of God. And how does he respond? He weeps, he mourns, he prays, he fasts for days. A right emotional response in view of God's fractured relations with his people. Here we see again, demonstrated in Nehemiah this time, right feelings. Remember that sermon? Ortho, you remember? Pathy, yes. Orthopathy, right feelings. 
in view of right beliefs, orthodoxy. That's where we ended Ezra. Ezra responds in a similar way. Right feelings in accord with right beliefs. Consider this. This is immediately applicable to us. Think about, think about our day. Just quickly jump to where we are. How often do we mourn and weep over the state and spiritual condition of the church in America, in our community, in the, around the world? When was the last time we mourned and weeped and prayed and fasted for days over fractured relationships of God with his people? Now, what remains in this chapter is an in-depth look at the heart and mind of Nehemiah as he prays to God, interceding on behalf of the people of God. Let's walk through this prayer slowly and soak up as much as we can. There is much to digest in this prayer. We're going to walk through it verse by verse. He starts in verse 5. He starts by fixing his gaze on the majesty of God. Adoration. He praises God for who he is. A truly awesome and great God who keeps covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his law. Two important notes here. First, it's important that we notice, we just saw it at a glance, we're going to walk through this, so, so, so notice this. Notice Nehemiah's, the order of Nehemiah's prayer. This is very important as we get to applications and take this with us. He starts with praise and then moves to petition. Keep that in mind. How often do we just jump right into prayer asking God to give us what we think we need and want? Right? Dear Heavenly Father, uh, please do this for me. Give me this. Let me have this. Do this for me. I need this. Help me through this. Thank you. Amen. That's very common. Starting with myself. It just kind of flows naturally because that's who we are. It's about me, naturally. We, we start by our needs. Well, what we need, look at, watch how Nehemiah prays. And this is a pattern all throughout Scripture that we really, that would be good for us to carefully and fully digest. Starts with praise, moves to petition. He starts by looking at God. This is what faith does. Faith is a looking away from yourself to him. I'm reading a book right now that's stirring my heart in tremendous ways that I would highly recommend for you all to very carefully, this tiny little earth shaker, carefully work through this, maybe with your groove, I would highly recommend it to you, and, and reflect on this, The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer. In one of his short chapters, Tozer speaks of faith being the gaze of a soul upon a loving and saving God. He says, the, the satisfying delight that we receive in God is from the eyes of our heart looking up to him, meeting his eyes looking at us. The eyes of God. The all-satisfying smile of God. Our eyes connecting. That's the delight that we receive. It's beautiful. And it's true. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces will never be ashamed. Amen? By starting our prayer time looking at God, we put everything else in its proper place in its proper perspective, both ourselves and our life circumstances. When you start by looking at yourself and your life circumstances, oh, I'm so wretched, I'm such a failure, I'm such a sinner, oh God, oh, how could this be happening to me? How did this happen? How am I ever going to get through this, oh God? It makes yourself and your life circumstances great. 
But when we start by fixing our gaze on the majesty of God, the mercy of God as revealed in his word, he remains the great one. And everything else from ourselves to our life circumstances becomes smaller, less gripping on us. Second note here, Nehemiah invokes covenantal language. He rightly acknowledges that God keeps his covenant and love toward those who love him. He is faithful. This is important. What we see here are essentially the two pillars of maintaining God's covenantal relationship with his people. Love and law. It's ultimately God's love that establishes and preserves the covenant. But love and law are the two pillars of maintaining a healthy covenantal relationship with God. Now, look at the natural progression of his prayer. He goes from you who is faithful in keeping your love and promises toward us. Now it's time for self-examination. Do we love him supremely and follow his word, his law? Do I? Verse 6. Let your ears and eyes be toward us now as I pray day and night on behalf of all Israel, your servants, confessing our sin. We have sinned against you. I have sinned against you, me and my father's house, he says. After looking at the majesty, the faithfulness, the love of God, he can't help but to examine himself and his people. He moves from adoration to confession. What's interesting to note here is that Nehemiah is reciting very words of Solomon the day he prays at the dedication of the temple of God in 1 Kings 8. He's praying scripture. In verse 7, Nehemiah confesses, we've been corrupt. We haven't kept your commands, statutes, and ordinances, God's law which directly implies we haven't loved you. Family, it's important we understand the connection between love and law, the purpose of the law. It wasn't to suffocate them, but to keep them in God's love. Protected and secure, the law of the Lord is good. However, they chose their own ways. They became complacent. The walls and the gates lie in ruins for several years now, while everyone focused on their own households for their own purposes. We've left you again, Nehemiah cries. Day and night, he cries, Scripture says. Day and night. Notice his persistence. It's another important feature for us to take with us and carefully digest. He's persistent. Once we note the setting of chapter 2, we're going to see that it's about four months long that he's praying, mourning, fasting, and weeping, seeking God over this matter. He prioritizes prayer before he does anything, before he comes up with any plans or does anything, he spends extended time seeking the Lord in prayer. Last note on his confession here. He confesses sin on behalf of the community of his people. The statutes of God were made very clear through Moses In Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 30, blessings and protection for the faithful 
curses and scattering for the unfaithful. And whether it started with just a few choosing to pursue their own ways and that maybe influencing others, or whether it was the giving up and giving in to opposition and the influence of others, whatever the case, little by little, the whole community found themselves outside of God's will for them. Someone needs to help them see. And restoration must begin with corporate repentance. This is a foreign concept to much of our Western world today of individualism. We, we reject this notion culturally. I want to be responsible for myself, my own sin, no one else's. Family, this is a narrow understanding of Scripture with respect to sin and repentance and salvation in Scripture. Yes, God will hold each one of us individually responsible for what we have done with his revelation of himself and his will for us. But we also have a responsibility for each other in the very unity that he purchased for us, all of us. Family, consider this. The gospel is a corporate phenomenon. The fact that you were born into this world in sin, inheriting all its consequences, is not because of what you've done or didn't do. It's because you inherited the sin and its consequences from Adam. If you reject that, then you can't receive the salvation of God and the redemption of God through Jesus Christ, who also accomplished redemption in your place. You didn't do that either. For just as through one man sin entered the world and death reigned over all humanity through him, so through the one man Jesus Christ, Romans 5, salvation has come, justification of life for all who believe. These are the only two realms in which every human on the face of this planet exists. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Corporate identification. Family, beware of the cultural influence around us and beware of our natural desires, what's in us. The posture of our culture in the world which bleeds into the church is, I am innocent. It's their fault. Can't be me. By whatever means, it can't be me. It has to be them. We love to blame others. We can't not blame others. It's part of our nature. That's what flows out of us. The, the best thing we can do is, is, is start by at least acknowledging that and just accepting that. That it's natural for us to blame others, okay? We can't not. But the wise spiritual believer of Scripture can humbly identify their own corrupt ways and their identification or participation in the corrupt ways of their community. The wise spiritual believer can humbly do this, whether actively or passively identifying with their community, but they can identify. Progress starts by getting our own house in order before God, aligning our heads, hearts, and hands with God's will in his word. The humble sinner whom the eyes of God are upon knows how to navigate through sin, reaching for God's grace, confessing their failure, inconsistencies, and foolishness. 
and persevering beyond the dilemma at hand toward a solution to their problems. This is what we see in Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah moves from adoration to confession and then to supplication, presenting his request to God in verses 8 and 9. Look at verse 8. Remember. That's a big transition there. Remember, he's drawing upon God's word, God's very own promises. Just as you said you would scatter us if we're unfaithful, you also said in Deuteronomy 30 that if we return to you, O Lord our God, and if we keep your ways, that, that you would gather us even from the farthest places of the earth, that you would, you would bring us back to your place. I love this. This is what I heard John Piper in a sermon once call gutsy guilt. That's good. Gutsy guilt. He knows he's guilty, but he also knows who God is. He knows what God does because he knows what God promised he'll do in his word. He knows God and his word, and so he comes to him with guts, gutsy guilt. Remember, and in verses 10, 11, we have the signs of what appear to be returning hearts as he intercedes. They are your servants, your people who delight to fear your name. That's covenantal language of love there. He goes on, whom you've redeemed by your power and your strong hand. There's thanksgiving in there. He's praising God for what he's done. Notice how he draws upon God's saving acts of former days and pleads for him to act in the same way for their future. Their only hope is the compassion and grace of God exhibited through the strong hand of God returning to them. He prays boldly because he knows that God is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He knows that God does not give up on sinful people. He knows that God restores the, the, those who come to him with repentant hearts, who confess with lowly and contrite hearts, acknowledging their failures before God. He knows this. Family, what we've seen throughout this entire prayer are the foundations of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We've literally just walked stage by stage through the entire gospel message of the Bible that we're all born in sin, bound to corruption in our selfish ways, condemned and eternally separated from God in exile. We're all kinds of weak, vulnerable, and open to perpetual shame before God, within ourselves, and before others. And in order to be redeemed and restored to wholeness and right relationship with God, ourselves, and others, he must act in accord with his grace and compassion. He must move his strong, ho his strong hand. That's our only hope. And that he has done. Amen by sending Jesus Christ to live the life we should have lived in perfect obedience to God in our place and dying on the cross for sin in our place. He purchased redemption and restoration for us. Now for those who see him and believe in him with repentant hearts turning from our ways and toward him to love him and live for him, we are redeemed he is ours. We are his now and forevermore. His promises are ours to keep. No one's going to take, no one nor anything can take that from us. Look to him and live is the message throughout scripture. From Nehemiah's time to ours today. Nehemiah closes his prayer in verse 11, interceding on behalf of the community of God, seeking God's grace and strong hand to restore them again. And he's praying for himself. Grant your servant success 
and compassion before this man. Then he clarifies who this man is. Now I was cupbearer to the king. The king. Nehemiah is the king's right-hand man. This is the guy who spent most of his time with the king, tasting and testing every meal and drink that was put before the king. Someone's got to die before the king. The bond that, that, that's it before the king does, the, the bond that's established between, between these two is among the strongest in the entire empire. Nehemiah is the king's right hand. The same King Artaxerxes, this is important, who terminated the building of God's city and who caused the destruction of the walls in his decree, who triggered that. That's the right-hand man who, he's, who, who, he says, who he stands against. So now we see the problem for God's people. Jerusalem is in a state of disgrace due to their sin. And their potential solution is that through Nehemiah's prayer, God will have mercy and give Nehemiah favor before the king for a task which he has no idea yet. That is quite a position for Nehemiah. Do you think that Nehemiah had any idea that God might use him in some significant way to lead his people? Probably not. He's just doing his thing, serving in his role, and it was a good role. That brother was rich and comfortable. But before he has any idea that he would be a leader of God's people, he lays himself before God and his people as a servant. A servant. We see his heart throughout this prayer. Biblical leadership 101 right here. What's also clear is that he doesn't just pray about the problem and leave it to someone else to figure out. Listen to him in his prayer. He's willing and eager to discover how God might use him to be part of the solution over there. He's willing to act. He's not only willing, he's eager. And he knows that however God leads him, it is going to be very risky. But Nehemiah trusts God. Because he knows him. And he knows his promises in his word. Family, it's the love of God, the compassion of God, that keeps Nehemiah bound to God, seeking him with his whole heart. The compassion of God fuels passionate prayer. That's our big idea of this morning. The compassion of God fuels passionate prayer. Back to our question at the start, which is fitting for this new year. Is your house in order? By whose standards are you living, Christian? Is our house in order? Together. Based on our study of Nehemiah 1 this morning, I suggest three applications for us to take away this, not only this week, but in the months ahead. I'd love for us to, to really take this with us and ask the Lord to impress these applications on our heart as we seek the Lord's will together in the days ahead and seek the fullness of life together in Christ Jesus. One, prioritize prayer. Seek the Lord and love him. Come to him. Receive him. Receive his compassion, his mercy. The compassion of God fuels passionate prayer. Family, it's circular. The more time you spend in communion with God in prayer, the more intimately connected you'll be with him, the more time you'll want to spend with him in prayer. 
It's circular. Pray for the people of God. Persist in this. Pray for our church. Pray for the churches in our community, throughout the nation. Pray for the global church. Pray for the persecuted church. Pray for our brothers and sisters in the Middle East as we share prayer points throughout the year. Pray for our missionaries scattered throughout the world. Pray for our family members in, in, in war-torn Ukraine, in Eastern Europe, and in, in many other places experiencing war and conflict throughout the world. These are our weapons of warfare, family. Prayer. We have prayer cards that Tracy made available for you on the tables on the way out. These prayer cards, if you look at the, the next slide, then we'll come back. Just lay out a simple prayer tool that we, or yeah, next one. A simple prayer tool, thank you, that we prayed together. We walked through this method on New Year's Day. This is a way, uh, this is basically the same, uh, the same pathway that we just followed Nehemiah on. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. It's a way to help you focus and guide you in your prayer life. Take one of these prayer cards with you. It's on the table on the way out. Prioritize prayer. Two, persist in the word, family. Let's go back. Persist in the word. Know the Lord. Know his word. Know his promises that you might cling to them. When we pray, family, we pray according to his will as revealed in his word. We know his will when we know his word. When we come to God, we ask God to do what he promises he'll do. You understand that? We ask God to do what he promises he'll do. And we only know what he promises to do when we know his word. When we know him, we can be gutsy because we're clinging to his promises. Third application, prioritize prayer, persist in the word, and prepare to act. Oftentimes we just, we, we pray and don't do, or we just do and don't pray. Prepare to act in your prayer. Trust the Lord. Do what he says, even if it's risky. Get involved in his work in the church or in the world, both. An outreach email just went out on Friday. Consider ways in the weeks ahead that you can participate in service and outreach in the community. Down in Philly, we have a couple of options out right now. William Carey, the father of, uh, the father of modern missions, once made a, a great statement which triggered a global movement. He said at a convention one time, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. That's it. That's a great summation of this whole chapter. Expect from God, attempt for God. Pray and act. Step out in faith, family. Trust that God can and wants to do a powerful work through you. Lastly, we're not just committed to leaving you all. We're not just going to leave you all with your own personal applications. I've mentioned to you time and time again over the last several weeks and months that we're committed to prioritizing prayer as a church body together. So I'm excited to unfold for you what's coming in this year ahead, starting today and tomorrow specifically, okay? Let's move to, here we go. Starting tomorrow, we're going to launch a prayer week in this week ahead. A united effort, a corporate effort of our church. Every morning at 6 a.m., a prayer, a prayer focus that I've drafted is going to go out to the whole church body. If you are not on the church events and regular email, on the current, grab one on your way out. You can fill out. You can sign up. You can sign up online and submit a card to, to, to sign up to receive emails. You can fill it out, put it in a box, give it to a welcome desk uh, a member out there. Every morning from Monday to Friday this week ahead, I'm going to ask that you all labor in prayer with us toward the same ends. We're going to seek the favor of God, the grace of God, and the strong hand of God to be upon us in this year ahead. 6 a.m., look for an email every day this week. Tomorrow night, MLK Day, many of us are off. We're going to have a praise and prayer night here at 7 p.m. right here. And, and we're going to have a special, we're going, to, we're going to pray in general, and we're going to have a special prayer focus on healing for our church. 
physical, emotional, spiritual healing for our church. Tomorrow night, 7 p.m., come on out. Prioritize prayer. Now, moving forward, we're going to launch this new year with a prayer week in this week ahead starting tomorrow. Then, moving forward, the first Sunday of every month is Communion Sunday. At the end of both services, our elders in the services are going to be up front receiving you all for any type of ministry and prayer that we can be of offer to you every month for the rest of the year. Okay, at least. First week of every month, elders will be up here to receive you. That's not the only time you can come to us. Anytime you can email, come to us. But we're going to be up here to, to minister and be with you in labor and prayer in any way that we can. Um, second Sunday, between now and June, we're going to have corporate in-service prayer time together. Second Sunday of every month between now and June. The starting February, really starting this month because we're having a prayer meeting tomorrow night. But starting in February for the rest of the year. The fourth Monday of every month. We're going to notify you week in and week out. Moving ahead. This is not the first information here. Notice here. Uh, every Monday, uh, the fourth Monday of every month, we are going to have a prayer meeting at this church at 7 p.m. in the Woodside Room. Every month, we're going to have general prayer time together, and we're going to have a special prayer focus for that month that we'll communicate to you ahead of time. And, and then when we grow and pour over, we'll, we'll move into the auditorium. And that's going to happen. You know why? Because when we come to God in prayer, we're going to believe that he is God and he rewards those who seek him. Amen? And we're going to see him answer our prayers together. And it's going to cause us to want more prayer. That's what we want in the, in the weeks ahead. Family, when I accepted this role, gratefully, happily, I also made it very clear to the staff, to those interviewing me, to the elders, that I am not in the business of merely running a productive organization. There's a place for that. That's good work. But me here, I want to be part of a living, vibrant, transformative movement in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Amen? And that is only going to start and move forward by seeking the Lord in prayer together. I really hope that the Lord will stir your hearts. You will see and behold the, 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 the marvelous beauty it is to know God, walk with God, and seek him in prayer and watch his powerful hand work through us. Let's move forward together eagerly in prayer. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord, we come here today, we're weak, we're vulnerable. Some of us are ashamed, filled with disgrace. We've been unfaithful. Thank you. Thank you for your mercy, your grace. Thank you for your faithfulness, O oh God. Have mercy on us. Open the eyes of our hearts. For those who do not know you, open the eyes of our hearts. And for those who do know you, open the eyes of our hearts to see and behold your beauty, to meet your eyes looking at us, to receive your loving smile upon us by faith in Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done for us. We trust in you. Help our unbelief. Fuel a, a, a powerful work of, of, of our seeking you, Lord Jesus, in these days ahead together. We need your spirit to accomplish this work through us. Lord, so we commit our ways to you, establish our plans, and we want to see your strong hand at work in and through this church that our joy would be complete and you would be glorified through us. All God's people said, amen.